0: It's time to take your research to the next level with Interactive Brokers' redesigned Fundamentals Explorer. Fundamentals Explorer provides comprehensive, worldwide fundamental data to all IBKR clients at no cost. More than 30,000 companies covered worldwide with more than 300 data points per company and over 80 sources for newswires and reports. The Fundamentals Explorer lets you really get into and dive deep into hundreds of data points covering historical trends, industry comparisons, key ratios, forecasts, ratings, ownership, and more. And it does that so that you can see the whole picture. It also now includes a securities lending dashboard that provides complementary and premium security lending analytics. You can use short-sale data on thousands of securities worldwide to generate trade ideas gauge short sentiment, and even evaluate your portfolio from a completely different angle. You can also find data faster, add depth to your trading analysis, and compare beyond plain numbers, because we know better research is better decisions. Visit IBKR.com. Interactive Brokers is a member SIPC. The Disciplined Investor
1: is all about you, your money, and the markets. Sit back and get ready for this edition of The Disciplined Investor Podcast. This episode of The Disciplined Investor is sponsored by Horowitz & Company. If you're looking for a portfolio manager, look no further. Horowitz & Company, from seed through harvest, cultivating financial success.
0: And on this farm, server farm, there was a chip, AI, AIO. I mean, that's everything it's about. AI. We have a lot of data that came in talking about what's going on with the economy, and things are slowing down a little bit, but employment's still hot. And we have two guests for the price of one Danielle DiMartino Booth and John Pugliano. All this and much more on episode number 852 of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. Hey, welcome. Andrew Horowitz here, as I am each and every week, the host of the Disciplined Investor podcast, as well as the host and co-host of DH Unplugged, which is Tuesday Nights with John C. Dvorak. If you have not subscribed to that or listened to that podcast, it's a hoot. It's a, we have a lot of fun talking about what's going on in the world and what's happening with news that makes sense and some of it doesn't. We try to unravel it and, and unpack it and give it to you back so you can use it. Listen. It's all about understanding what's happening and putting it into the right perspective because sometimes, you know, you look at things and you're like, well, why is that happening? And the opposite seems to be the more logical side. But sometimes when it comes to investing, the reality is that what is illogical is actually very logical. You know, you look at, for example, this that last week, we saw some really good and very hot jobs numbers. And you would think that, well, hey, that's interesting. And then you see on the heels of that, company like Wayfair doing a big layoff and a few others and their stocks rocket higher. And you think, well, why is that happening? I mean, if we see a lot of layoffs, isn't that really bad? Well, yes. In fact, truth be told, layoffs over the long haul are bad. They're a bad side from the company. If in fact, they have to continue laying off to meet their their needs. And simply because that means that business is slow. On the other hand, if they overhired, and now they're getting back to a more normalized business pattern or possibly even automated to a point they don't need all of those employees and they lay them off, the profitability of the company actually may be slightly better. And that's what the markets are focusing in on. Whether or not it's true all the time is another discussion entirely. But when it comes to the first knee-jerk reaction of the market. When they see that there are these layoffs that come off, all they they are starting to see is, wow, you know what? Cha-ching, lots of savings, trickling down to the bottom line, EPS number, earnings per share, and that's going to be good for the future. If, in fact, we have to reevaluate this and look at this a little bit differently, we will do so. But right now, the bottom line is, we're happy as clams to say, thank you for saving some money and doing a bit of a restructuring to a degree. Well, what else happened this this week was uh, pretty interesting. The continuation of everything AI in Davos. The conversation was all about AI. The CNBC panel that was there talking with all the guests that were handpicked for one reason or the other. Didn't matter what the potential subject matter was set to be. It didn't matter what the particular level of expertise of the guest was. Every question, thankfully, was not about the Fed this time. It was all about AI. And okay, is that a smart thing? It's not the point. The point is right now, the focus is so exciting about this next level in technology. It it is very reminiscent of the breakthroughs that we saw initially with the internet back in the day. And yes, there's going to be winners and losers, but everybody is only focusing on a few companies as the picks and shovels right now. And the end user, those that are going to benefit, like a Microsoft, for example, or a Google, possibly a Facebook, um, they're, they're doing very well. But, you know, you look at NVIDIA and you look at uh, AMD and you look at Intel, the makers of the, the chips. And then you have to look at the server pro- service providers, right? Um, you have to look at the Microsofts, of course, as we mentioned for s- several different reasons, but also for the storage capability of the servers, server farms, you know, AWS, Azure. Um, you got to look at all the security firms also. So this is a renaissance of sorts when it comes to the next generation of what is hoped to be an exciting area of technology that will enhance our life, but also create efficiencies beyond Your wildest dreams, that is what is being proposed, and that's why we see the levels of interest in in all the stocks we just mentioned sky high. That's why you can't get a down day, even when it is a down day, for NVIDIA or AMD these days. I mean, it's a down day, and then all of a sudden it turns around, the next few minutes, it's up. We're going to talk about this with our guests. I don't want to take that time from them um, and, and get into that. So let's start our first discussion with our first guest, and it's going to focus probably because I know our guest very well on the Fed. So let's uh, ring her up. Let's bring her on and get to it. And our guest today is Danielle DiMartino Booth. She's the CEO and Chief Strategist at QI Research. And she's a, what's, what? I think there's a great definition. She's a global thought leader in monetary policy, economics, finance, and uh, she founded QI Research in 2015. She's an author of the book Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. here, here, now. Uh, she's also a very uh, well-known and well-desired uh, speaker, commentator. You see her on CMC and Bloomberg and Fox and blah, 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 blah and all Yahoo. It's, you're everywhere. How are you?
1: I'm,
2: I'm great. I'm blah, 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 blah. So um, <laughs> I'm, I'm as bubbly today as you are. Happy to, happy to talk to you in 2024. Yeah.
0: Happy New Year. Thank you so much for uh, being here all the time and- Bringing some great stuff to our listeners, so I I just I thought that we would we would spend some time today talking a little bit about um, first of all some of my thoughts because I you know me I'm I, I just I sometimes uh I don't know if it was Seinfeld or it was Larry Davis like I can't take it anymore you know it's like these uh the constant back and forth and contradicting commentaries from the Fed speakers and wondering if it's fully orchestrated just so happenstance that they're doing it this way. Um, let's start with that for a moment, and then I want to talk about some of the things you're writing about, et cetera. But what's going on? Every day there seems to be another person, if it's not within the blackout time period, uh, another speaker that's coming out talking about something that seems to contradict. Is this a grand plan to equalize in the 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 markets, or is there something else going on?
2: Um, I think it's a little bit more nuanced than what you describe, But on the other hand, you know, I need to get out more. But but I've got these people like in a pecking order. And I know which ones speak for Jay Powell. I know the ones who are the closest to Jay Powell. I know the ones who toe the line because Jay Powell's got something on them. And so as long as you've got the inside baseball like I do at least like I tell myself I do then I can <laughs> I can kind of rank who they are and what they say and that way I can be like okay that's important or ignore it. And um you know when Waller speaks I listen the most closely after Powell. Um and when William speaks after that I'd listen the, the second most closely and away we go.
0: So what is when you say it's more nuanced though let's just get into that. What what is the plan here by sending out all these speakers on a regular basis because the fed by their very you know their own admission is is they're long-term minded, right? They're not day-to-day. They don't they don't watch it but it's almost like they're involved on a constant basis these days.
2: Are but I think I, I think that Fed officials know that, um, especially when markets run away, like when markets go crazy and it's like it's a pivot and you know world peace as we know it is around the corner <laughs> and the stocks are going to the moon and um, so I think at, at those times I think that Fed speak is very deliberate in that it's meant to kind of quash animal spirits when they go haywire. Mm. Then, but again, that that's extremely deliberate. Sometimes you hear a Fed speaker, and you're like, "That person just made no sense. They're not a voter. Right? They're, they're, what they say doesn't it do, doesn't won't won't play out in any way in terms of policymaking, and you just go mute on every level.
0: But what is so? If they're not a voter, what is their role?
2: Well, every well now it's it's now, and they will tell you. Very quickly. I, I I either vote every two years or I vote every three years. But the regional reconnaissance that I bring to the table is essential. Now, I, I will say that in the second largest economy in the country or the largest economy in the country, the largest is, of course, California mm-hmm. with three and a half trillion dollar economy, like the fourth, fourth or fifth largest economy in the world as a standalone. And then Texas is right behind California in terms of being the second largest. Even though the heads of those Federal Reserve districts only vote every three years, you wouldn't wanna be running a country without knowing what your first and second largest economies are doing. Mm -hmm. So the intel on the ground function is essential, but what they say in terms of their input to monetary policy, that's a different story, but that does not mean that you can say, "Okay, so you know, the 12th district of San Francisco is not voting for another two years, so you know, I'll just disregard uh, that." That's a dangerous proposition when you consider things like, "Oh, I don't know, one generation ago, new century, countrywide, little orange man," or this <laughs> this particular generation, you know, the Silicon Valley bank. Everything seems to go wrong in that district, but you don't want to ignore it. But don't
0: we have a beige book that provides that data on a monthly basis? I mean, it, we it, it seems to me yeah, that we, we have, we, we do. Yeah.
2: And it sure would be nice if we could just go off the beige book. I,
0: I know because you can get the beige book and then let's say I'm just making this up. Everything looks really lousy in the, in the beige book. And maybe that affects things one way or the other. But then they come out and they're, well, you know, the market's misunderstanding, misinterpreting. um, And they come out a few days later and they're talking about something totally different. I don't know. It just seems to me that there is uh, a very strange relationship with the, uh, do I I dare say the facts uh, uh, of what's going on and why it has to be constantly this. It seems to me they're so afraid of confidence being broken that they need to keep on talking so that no other, no other sounds can come in.
2: Well, that's there. There's a lot of fear factor in fed speak. And I completely agree with what you're saying, but of course, you know, come, come Friday, whatever this, this Friday's date is, uh, they go into blackout for, for the next two weeks. And then things get really dicey in the markets. Is when they cannot say anything by stricture of the uh, of the FOMC, right? So they enter then they enter blackout ten business days uh, before any FOMC meeting, which means that as of the close of business on the nineteenth, everything goes silent.
0: Yeah, except for the fact they have dinners with all sorts of bankers and people during those periods. But yeah, okay.
2: Ah, uh, you know what? Um, I will push back. They have been caught in the past. Hmm. And been severely reprimanded, but they're not supposed
0: to. I I agree with they're not supposed to. I didn't say they're not supposed to.
2: Well, they occasionally get caught. They shouldn't be getting caught.
0: Right. Well, it's right. Is it wrong if they don't get caught?
2: Of course not. No. No, no, no. no. We're talking to somebody who's been... I'm like a walking, talking... I was three and a half years old, and they were like, we have this first generation of Ritalin, and we think that you should put your daughter Danielle on it. I'm a walking, talking picture of uh, of the need for for, for riddlin not that I've ever taken it um, <laughs> but funny. by the same token um you know we, we we need clarification sometimes when markets go haywire and that's that's where fed speak comes in right um, but i but you know what i'm 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 happy that you randomly raised the subject of the beige book because it was awful and yep. nobody paid attention to nobody it cared.
0: Well, maybe they did, and they're using the opposite thing going on, right? You know, how things are falling off, and that's better for markets. It seems to me, though, that every excuse that can possibly be made for why things are better for the markets are being used on a regular basis. And, you know, if it's, if it's one day where you have uh, massive decliners in the market, but you still have five or six of the largest stocks doing well, and markets don't really fall off, but meanwhile, the average stock is down 2% on the day, and the markets only closed down 0.1 percent. Uh, you know, there's something going on. There's clearly a uh, these happen during different times, but isn't there clearly a bid to the markets with the expectation that the Fed is going to bring rates down back down to zero? I guess one day. I mean, that's the that's what it seems like okay, to okay,
2: me. So wait, 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 wait! Look though, you just asked the right question. You just asked the right question. So the reason that, that markets got so darn pissed off at, at Waller's remarks is because he said, we can be really slow and measured. You know, we we can just do a quarter of a percentage point at a time. We can take things really slowly mm-hmm. in 2024. But you're asking the question that, you're asking the only question markets want the answer to. And that's for the love of God, when do we get to zero? I don't want to know anything else. Right. I don't want to know about measured. I don't want to know about, I I, I joked about it on on Twitter this morning. I'm like rodents of unusually large size. (laughs) People want to know about unusually large rate cuts that are going to get us to the zero bound quickly, for God's sake. That's all you're good for, Fed. And as soon as you get to the zero bound, then you can relaunch quantitative easing. And we can really have a party and take leverage on up to our eyeballs. So That's what people want to know about. They don't want to care, they don't care about dribs and drabs
0: it's and it's amazing though how incremental
2: you know, moves they want to run monetary policy making they want to be in the, the stock market wants to be in the driver's seat if it's not it throws a hissy fit
0: I really don't understand why there is this expectation that we go back to zero because the truth is if we get back to zero anytime ever but soon it really means we have some severe debilitating economic problems that are going to be very painful on people everywhere and, and and that doesn't necessarily translate into a very uh robust position for for stocks does it
2: no but but by the same token you know I mean you're you're you're, you're like asking about the world's oldest oldest profession I mean, it's never been a good thing, and, and you know, it, it's never been a good thing that markets can't really exist on their own without you know the constant heroin high of the zero bound and quantitative easing. How did we get this way?
0: It's did it started. How tha- th- on the
2: planet become become a drug a drug addict?
0: Well, it's all because of of it started. You know when it started back in the two thousand. That's when pretty much it all started. In the, to this degree. And then it exacerbated in the financial crisis. It started
2: to this degree, but it also started to this degree in 1987 when, you know, a, a rather small of stature man who was not that popular in high school got a sugar high from, from making the stock market go up after it crashed in October of 1987 and decided that that was kind of a jolt that he'd won every day. And so th- that's when it really started. It's just gotten worse and worse.
0: You know, I think you're right about that. I think, I think you're onto something right there. I think the idea of being able to say something and see an immediate reaction by a market worth trillions of dollars domestically, forget about internationally, is it's gotta be I- I- exhilarating.
2: It. it, it you, what do they say? Power is all corrupting or no, there's, power. There's, there's some saying about power. that that described it as being the ultimate corrupting force and to have that kind of power. I I can just imagine, Oh my God. I just, I just moved the market market a percentage point. Wall Street's paying attention to me. Wow. What a rush. Of course.
0: Hmm. So I think it's absolute power corrupts. Absolutely.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Is that the one? Is that what it is? Yeah. I would have been scratching my head for the <laughs> that's not true. The minute we stopped talking, I would have gone Google.
0: Yeah. So, yes. Well, so the other point is, is it the Fed that did this? What I'm about to describe to you, or is it something else? I mean, I don't want to, I know you're very friendly with many of the uh traditional media. So I'm not going to mention any names, but it seems to be that there have been occasions where the guests that come on are asked incessantly and and, and, and primarily about what their views are on the next move of the Fed. Hours of a day are spent asking the same question over and over. Can you explain to me where the benefit for anybody is on that? And maybe one more thing, and why
2: this is happening. Well, when you consider the fact that 493 of the companies in the Standard and Poor's 500 are losing money, it sure as hell is a lot more fun to talk about what the Fed's going to do next rather than talk about what's actually happening in wait, corporate. Wait, wait, America.
0: wait, wait. 493. 493. 493 companies, in the S and P 500, are losing money.
2: Let me put it differently.
0: Yeah, please do because I'm missing that.
2: The S and P 500. Yes. Earnings. Yes. Would be down absent the magnificent seven. Ah. at least that's
0: okay. what factors. So what you're said. saying they're not losing money, but their 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 earnings are coming down. Yes. Okay, I got you. That that yeah, I got that. All right, I misunderstood or maybe not, but yeah. But
2: it's. But you can only talk about seven companies for so long. It's a lot more fun to talk about seventeen policymakers and what they might say next, since they all have diarrhea of the mouth. So it's it's just it's a lot more fun. Fifty three percent of inflows to the stock market are passive. Mm-hmm. So there's just I mean, you don't sit around and say you know what's this company's uh, you know cash flow generation capacity. Who gives it a darn?
0: Yep, I hear you. So what are you you focusing on right now? Where is your research taking you right now?
2: Well, actually, my research is taking me right now on whether or not we're actually going to see the old dawn come up as a new dawn. Mainly because this, look, in November of 2022, Amazon came out of the gate and said, we're going to fire 10,000 people, mostly in technology and corporate positions. So what, we're going to fire 10,000 white collar workers. So November 2022 is when white collar, the white collar labor recession started. Now Amazon's just announced another round of layoffs. Silicon Valley is announcing another round of layoffs. And
0: markets are cheering.
2: Markets are cheering. Um, there are there are right now actually CEOs whose confidence has not improved at all. Market confidence goes up, goes down. CEOs have been in a cost cutting mode for longer than a year and they, they remain in cost cutting mode. They're in right now, they're in a foot race to fire people and they're doing so because their bonuses are based off of earnings per share, right? So they need to get earnings per share up. How do they do that? Two ways. They fire people, they buy back their shares. That's about it. So, um, so they're firing people.
0: Well, they could earn more money.
2: I'm just saying. Oh my gosh, you're such such an intellectual rebel. (laughs) Gosh, Mm -hmm. Uh, they could do that. They could do that. Uh, But they also know that their competitors are really still too expensive to go play M&A games because they'd be paying that through the nose. So it's better to buy back their shares and to make their earnings per share better and to cut costs and to fire people. So at some point though, and people who are way smarter than I am are starting to see evidence of this the inflows to 401k's that are very automated and support the 53% of new inflows to the stock market which are passive at some point you cut enough to reverse the flow at the margin into the market now mm-hmm. when that happens the closer you get to that line in the sand the closer you are to this strange thing in our collective past called stock picking. Oh, I know, I know we have to get out like an old-fashioned huh. physical encyclopedia Britannica to look it up. You can't even Google stock uh-huh. picking, it's such a far antiquated huh. idea. Uh-huh. But if uh-huh. you cut enough jobs, especially of the white collar variety of the type that are matched handsomely by your employer. If you cut enough of those jobs, you, the flows to the 401ks are gonna reverse and you're gonna see all kinds of crazy things like, oh, I don't know, a day that Nvidia does not close up. Oh, oh come
0: wait, on, how dare we've you? We've
2: seen a few of those. Yeah. Oh, have we? How exciting. So that's really what I'm looking at right now. It's, it's it, It's a macroeconomic manifestation in flows, the flows that determine where the stock market is. So
0: you're talking about some of the mechanical flows, whereas people who are working, yeah, working every day, they get paid every week, the money goes into the 401k. You're saying with some of that backing off that there may be flows into the market that slow down.
2: Or even- Dot, dot, dot. Oh, yeah. Right. Oh, no. yeah.
0: But then again, you have the unlimited supply of, like, Japan, who I, I dare say with the sovereign wealth fund capability just keeps on buying stocks. Uh, that's another now thing. They that-
2: do, but they don't buy as much as they used to, yeah. right? Because their, their yields are kind of finally falling, excuse me, finally rising, excuse mm-hmm. me, rising right. after all this time. The Swiss National Bank got its wrist slapped because it owned, you know, basically the QQQ right. uh, and, and, you know, the, the people of Switzerland were like, wow, the bank is insolvent. So um, blind flows aren't what they were 18 months ago, shall we say? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I mean, the, the fact is that when we look at this and we, and we tear all this down and we talk about this and then, and then, and then by the way, we look at what happens around the corner. It seems like nothing changes. I mean, it is the ultimate of hope, which is fine, which is great. We should look at our future being better than it is today, each and every one of us, and and as a collective. I, I'm great with that, um, but I, I agree that when we start to look at how are things going up, why are things going up, and what mechanism is is making that happen, and when you do break it down, you look at things like you know the out the MOMO, momentum, and that that's a whole different thing, but the the earnings numbers that are based on some false pretense which is firings are not a false pretense, by the way. They do cut down expenses, but that's not good in the overall, right? Um,
2: not in an economy that's 70% consumption. Correct.
0: No, no I agree. I totally agree. But uh, on the other hand, the the false pretense or the, uh, I, I would say the magic, the financial engineering through stock buybacks, and of course a, an increased dividend at the same time, because you pay less out with the increased dividend because there's less- Shares outstanding. Right. (laughs) But, but the shares, but that comes back to the company too. Um, you know, those things are good and you look at those as I like those. And if the company is going to shrink the float, so be it. And let me be the benefactor of it. But in in a way that's, it's, it's not, it's definitely not organic growth. It's more cannibalism than, than organic growth. It
2: is. And you know, I don't want to recognize the elephant in the room, um, But it it does appear to be an election year, and it looks like the current House of Representatives is using up most of their political capital, keeping the government open, as opposed to dreaming up new ways of delivering helicopter money such that it doesn't look like, at least, U.S. households are going to get any kind of helicopter money Mm -hmm. until, say, April of 2025 at the earliest. So we're going to go back again to that whole idea of the U S GDP being 70% consumption. So things are going to start to matter to your point when there are enough people who are fired and uncle Sam is not filling in the blank.
0: Yeah. 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 Well, and then you have also on the top of it, I guess, what's the, what's your, and I'll ask you, what is your thoughts on, the extraordinary amount of debt, and, and even if we take out some of the Fed balance sheet, which has been reduced by a dribble, um, the government, the deficits we're running, and, and and the is that something you look into? Obviously, you do. But what are your thoughts? On that? it can't be a good thought. But what is the, you know, can we can we survive with the well, levels you know, we I, have?
2: W- w- when I think of when I think of the U.S. taxpayer cruising at breakneck speed towards a trillion dollars every 12 months on interest expense. I say to myself, well, gee, I'm a, I'm really a broken record. Mr. Harwood, you're going to have to deal with me here. Gee, (laughs) U S economy is 70% consumption. And if we're spending a lot more of our money servicing our debt, then that's less money to give to people. Yeah. Right. And that can't be good because it's all about consumption. So, Then you bring up a separate subject of the crowding out effect. If you're crowding out public spending by shoving it into the interest expense category, then there's less that you can spend on everything else. And that's just math in in, in a world of declining tax revenues.
0: No, there's so, a there's a fiscal hangover is what it is. You bring
2: up so many oh I don't know what, what's the word you bring up so many realities.
0: Oh, I'm sorry you, about that.
2: You're on a roll.
0: <laughs> you know, I mean this, this 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 is a fiscal hangover is what it is. You know, it's a fiscal spending hangover.
2: It's a huge one.
0: Yeah, and this this is
2: like the first time this was like when you were like 19 before anybody said don't mix your alcohols. Yeah, and then you wake up the next day and you're like that's what they meant. That's it's that kind of a hangover, right?
0: It's like beer after clear is beer after vodka. Nothing. It's gotcha. and Vodka <laughs> after beer. You're all in the clear or something like that. There's something, oh, like, okay. that, something like
2: that. Yeah. You're, you're starting to sound like somebody who's in close proximity <laughs> yeah. to Floridian fraternity boys. Yeah, but what do I yeah, know?
0: Exactly. Exactly. Danielle Martino Booth. How does people get in touch with you?
2: So uh, come look at qi.com Q- qi research excuse me um i am always making everything short Let's, let's than slow me.
0: down. I want you to slow down. Say it QI again research. say it again slowly. qi research.com
2: and or mm-hmm. uh, if you like what i have to say and and you're on a budget you just want to throw $59 a month out to becoming the most educated financially literate person mm-hmm. in the world marketingobooth.substack.com um, and always follow me on Twitter at dmartino Booth.
0: We'll put all that stuff on the uh, show notes for episode number 852. Thanks for joining me as always. I appreciate your insights and uh, everything that you have to say and your clarity and your reality.
2: Uh, likewise. I, I always <laughs> like to hang with you because one of us is always trying to talk faster than the other. It's yes. Always a dr-
0: <laughs> I was thinking that. <laughs> 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 I'll see you soon. Thanks.
2: Take care. Right, Bye-bye. Bye.
0: Moving Moving right along, I want to talk about Interactive Brokers for a moment because Interactive Brokers is your gateway to the world's markets. Interactive Brokers offers commissions starting at zero zero dollars for U.S. listed stocks and ETFs. You also get enhanced price execution via IB smart routing and access to their powerful trader workstation. It's a great system. You can do it on web, mobile, and API trading platforms all together. You can do it on desktop or API, wherever you want. Join clients from over 200 countries and territories around the world to invest globally in stocks, options, futures, forex, bonds, and funds from a single integrated account at the lowest cost. Check out IBKR.com. And our next guest is John Pugliano. He's the author of The Robots Are Coming! A Human Survival Guide to Profiting in the Age of Automation, which is very timely. We're going to talk about that. He's also the host of Wealth Steading, which we're going to talk about, the podcast, where he shares his ideas and personal experiences on wealth building principles. And we've had him on before, but we have him on again. JP, I call him JP. Does anybody else call you JP? Not too many. I I get pug, you know, I get pug quite often. Oh, oh, I think JP's cooler. Pugliano. Yeah, Pugliano. Pugliano. Yeah, uh, uh, Italian. Giuliano. Yeah, so
1: okay.
0: <laughs> let's, hey, great, let, Andrew. Andrew, great to be back on. Thanks, man. I'm glad you're here. So let's talk a little bit about some of the things you and I talk about offline. And one of the things, I guess, we could focus in on because it's 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 uh, it's so pervasive in the daily conversation of everyone because we've been not only trained, but I think. We've been whipped into shape to believing that the Fed has all power, all knowing. You know, it's Oz, right? It's the great and powerful Oz, is Jay Powell. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about how, well, here we are. They've won. They've conquered inflation. We're going to have a soft landing, whatever the hell that exactly means. Uh, And we're going to, you know, just ride off into the sunset because not only do we have all that going on, but by the way, there's also these other good things. Now. The case is, in commonplace, that interest rates are going to stay lower. As a matter of fact, I was talking with Daniel DiMartino Booth a little while ago, and we talked about how everybody's just basically looking for back-to-zero interest rate policy. But no, you are on the outside of that, I think, and talking about how possibly rates are going to stay higher for
1: longer. Yeah, I think, especially long-term rates, I think they're going to stay, you know, I think, 4 And you've seen they, they come back to 4%. When you and I first started talking about this episode, you know, rates were dropping like a rock down, yep. you know, 3.8 something, 3.75. Yep. Um, we're back to four. I think four to 6% is reasonable for a 10-year treasury.
0: Well, that's a big range. First of all, it couldn't get above five, right? So what? Th- but- yeah, this cycle. This cycle. No, no. <laughs> so that's a good point. That's an excellent point that you make there, that, that this is all cyclical and everything is always cyclical. And the truth of the matter is that you know, they rhyme sometimes the cycles, but give us give me some backdrop of why yeah, but, you think that four to six percent let's just call it you know higher than where we are now because that's really that's mostly higher than we are where we are now is is really something that's probable.
1: Sure, and, and I'll hit I'll hit the highlights and so we can drill down from there. But think about it this way too: when we just talked about that cycle coming out of the the Great Recession. We tried to moderate rates. Uh, in 2013, remember, I think it was the summer of 2013. They had the the taper tantrum. <laughs> rates got up to three percent, and the market freaked out. The Fed had to had to pull back. And everybody thinks that rates below three percent, below two percent, are normal. Um, but Andrew, I don't know exactly how old you are. I know you're pretty darn close to my age. Uh, you know, but from the time you were born un- until the Great Recession in mm-hmm. 2007, eight. Mm-hmm. Rates had almost never been below four percent, and, and I'm not even talking about the extremely high rates of the, you know, the, the late 1970s. Right, that was that or was that was that was, the,
0: that was normal.
1: That was totally normal. Nobody thought that four percent was a high rate. No, it wasn't high. Four, four to four to yeah, six percent was good. was you know was good. I mean, yeah, it got crazy when it was at eighteen percent, but you know, a ten-year treasury at at four to six percent was totally reasonable. After uh, and and you know, we got into this. Um, Great recession, though, where we started fooling around with near zero. We went down to—I uh, forget how low we actually went. Then we obviously went lower this we went last. To, we went to zero to 0.25. 0.25. and we and we and from there, we could never get above three. For well, I guess from I guess still in two thousand nine, they were still around four percent. It was a post post recession recovery where they stayed um, below three, and then. We get in the pandemic, we not only have quantitative easing, but we, you know, we double down on that, take the take the balance sheet up to almost $9 trillion, and we, we stay at zero, and so for 10, 15 years, everybody thinks this is normal. Uh, I think it's not only not normal, I think it just violates all the laws of economics, and we we really, to have a, a prosperous economy, we really need to be in that 4 to 6% rate from a fundamental basis, I mean, why would you invest long-term money if you don't get a rate of return? And for the last ten to fifteen years, no one's gotten a real rate of return until just recently. You know, in in the old yeah. days, the ten-year Treasury rule of thumb, you would look at that as being nominal GDP, right? If GDP's two, if uh, real is two percent and inflation's two percent, you'd somewhere around a four percent ten-year Treasury.
0: Right. Well, right and now that, the
1: real the real rate of
0: return on the ten years is like one and a
1: half. Right. Right. And it
0: and it, and it but it should and it should be, it, you should get a real rate of return. Of course, that's the whole game. Right. I mean, that's if why, you don't get you a real rate of return, invest? if you don't get a real rate of return, I'm talking about the word. Listen for, for those listening that have no idea what real versus non real is. We're not talking about like actual. That's not the thing. It's 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 the rate of return minus inflation. That's real. It's the net. Let's call it net after inflation. So if you have a rate of return on a bond of 5%, inflation of 3%, your real rate of return is 2%. That's just, that's just investment jargon and lingo. But it's important to understand that it's what you can spend or what you have available to spend, right? So, you know, for example, you know, you talk about people, same thing, what's, what's your real paycheck? Well, your real paycheck is not the gross, it's what you take, and then minus inflation, but that's a different story. But it's what you yep. take. You know, you you can't, if you get paid $50,000 a year, you can't spend $50,000 a year because out of that $50,000 comes just anything like, ta- just like taxes. So maybe down to 42,000. So that's your ta- take home. So it's what you can actually spend. What you can actually spend with a real rate of return, right, John, is is, is the number after inflation because otherwise you're going to go backwards.
1: Yeah, and and what, what, what pains me about the Federal Reserve, and you know, I get I, yeah, like you, I get tired of being inundated with hearing about artificial intelligence. In the Federal Reserve. But what what aggravates me about talk about the Federal Reserve is no one talks about the fact, or very few people talk about the fact that they've destroyed the earning capacity of money over le- these last ten to fifteen years. Everybody talks about you know what's the labor rate, what's what's the real income rate, but what the Fed has destroyed or had destroyed. This is prior to to Powell. I, I think it was all Bernanke and uh, and Yellen. I think Powell was actually trying to bring some normalcy to it, but they've destroyed the earning capacity of money. It, you go back to when Bill Clinton was president, say early 1990s, mid-1990s, 10-year treasury easily paying 6 to 6.5%. So this is at a time when average wages, average take-home pay, somewhere around $35,000. So if you had a million dollars in 1995, and you're getting a 6% rate of return on it, you're risk-free, you're making $60,000. You're making almost twice as much as the average Americans bringing home. Today, and this is with rates being as high as they are now, I mean, you're still, what are you looking at? 10-year uh, treasury is 4%. So you're making a million dollars is going to get you $40,000 worth of income. Average take-home household income is, what, $75,000? You're not even getting half. You used to get twice as much, now you're not even getting as happy. Well, let me ask you something though, John.
0: Let me me set the stage for you here, okay? You're in business, in life, you're in business. And uh, you need money to run your business. And for whatever reason, the current income that you have that's coming in is not enough to pay your expenses. You got that so far so good, right? So what do you do? You say, you know, I'm going to borrow some money. You go out there and you borrow money. But there's a little bit of a caveat. You tell everybody that you borrow money from that you, the borrower, have the right and the total freedom to peg the actual rate that they're going to borrow from you at. You follow what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And in doing so, are you going to pick a high number or a low number to lend at? I'm sure, a low number. Low number, as low as possible, like zero. Hello? So the Fed can keep on issuing debt with a zero. The problem comes into where we are now, where we have amassed a, just an enormous sum that is mind-boggling in the trillions of dollars of outstanding debt between um, U.S. debt outstanding and, and, and the balance sheet of the, of the Fed – that requires debt service on a regular basis, and that is escalating. And if you didn't have enough money to pay for things in the first place, and the reason why you sent money out, hello, so what do we do now, John?
1: Yeah, well, I think we're going to get back to the old bond vigilantes. Remember the bond vigilantes? I remember that same, them. Late, ni- late 1990s period, We the early 1990s, we actually, I think was the probably the only time during our lifetime when there was actually a budget surplus. We had 19 maybe it was 1993 4 there was a brief period where there was a budget surplus because the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991 so we we went from this cold war all the defense spending and uh we they talked about the peace dividend because we didn't have to fight the cold war anymore there were no hot wars at that point um we had all this extra money to spend that didn't need to go to def, uh, to to the you know to defense budget and military budget. So we briefly had a we briefly had that surplus. if you remember, Clinton, towards the end of his presidency, he tried to bring in universal health care. And that's, that I think that's what, what yeah, that's also what, what really prompted the Bond vigilantes. They looked at how much the debt would be exploding because that peace dividend was already starting to, you know, we'd gone from a, a year to where we had had a surplus and now we're spending more we know all the entitlements are coming, and then they want to do universal health care. Bond vigilantes sold U.S. debt like crazy. It, it took the rates from, I don't know, I think at that at that point they had gotten down. When we got the deficit, they went down like in the fives to fours, maybe four and a half. But man, the bond vigilantes shot that up to about 7% there briefly. And the only, I, and I think the only reason the U.S. came out of that so quickly is if you remember, it was like, 97 or 98 that we had the asian currency crisis so there was no play you know it was another one of those tinas right no alternative no one could go into foreign debt anymore they were afraid that all the asian tigers were going to fall apart and so money piled back in the united states uh, but, I, but i think we're, i think we're hitting that point now because you know what you talked about with the, the fed setting the rate and the government borrowing all that money cheap the problem is it's not just the government right look at look at the Small cap stocks. uh, I mean, I don't know which whose numbers to believe, but it looks like 30% of the Russell 2000 is unprofitable. Not 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 only unprofitable, 30% can't even service their existing debt, and and look at all the debt that in the next two to three years has to be rolled over. Shoot, all the debt this year that has to be rolled over. You know, if you were if you were a a small cap marginally unprofitable company in, in 2019, you could borrow money for maybe five and a half percent. You know, today you're not going to get that for probably under eight and a half percent. The problem though is that
0: nothing has exploded, right? We've had little bitty things. For example, back in March, we had the mini momentary banking crisis that everybody's like, Oh, the ripple effects, blah, blah, blah. You know, you do what happened. Right. And then it was over. Why? Because we just shoved more money at it. We changed the
1: rules. They changed the rules. That's, that's what they always do. And, 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 and the to, rules. I want to make sure we're clear about this. You no, know, and that's, that's, that's too why I want to emphasize. I'm not a gloomer, doomer type person that thinks the system's going to collapse tomorrow for what you just said. They changed the rules. Right? Yeah. Prior to last March, we had depository receipts only insured up to the, you know, FDCI, um, FDIC amount. Not anymore. And <laughs> now it's just, the federal just will cover any deposits. doesn't matter if it's. Personal And, banking and you just take assets $60,000? that were problematic and you side pocketed them.
0: You put them outside right. the range of the view of the investor saying that we're going to hold that to maturity. And if we do have to get rid of them and move them to mark to market, well, the Fed will just buy them back at full value. Like, wait a second. Did I miss something here in terms of risk, uh, reward, risk management, moral, uh, you know, a, a moral risk? I, I Just the whole thing. But. Right. For my listeners, that's part of the game. I want you to listen very carefully to what I'm saying here. And then want John, or as I should call him JP or Pug, to uh, chime in on this. It's part of the game that they change the rules of the game. And they change the rules of the game in favor of the investors most of the time. Now, one day, there's going to be a time, I will promise you this, and, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, that they will change the rules and it will benefit the investors, but something is going to be like, Oh, crap. That was a bad idea versus what has happened up until now where everybody's like, you know what? Who cares? Who cares how much debt, how much, debt, how much we debase the currency. Right. Well,
1: and, and this is how we got to the housing crisis, right? I mean, we, we started with, we wanted to have affordable housing. And so we dropped lending standards and then that just snowballed into, well, if we're going to drop rent lending standards for some people, we're going to drop them for everybody pretty soon. People that have no money are borrowing houses. Everybody, Everybody knew the system was corrupted. No one did anything about it. I think at the time it was um, Greenspan. When it all fell apart, Greenspan said, "You know, he he had lost faith in capitalism or something. He didn't think capitalism could ever do that." Well, there's nothing about capitalism. I mean, none of none of these banks were loaning out their own money. They were lo- they were loaning other yeah, people's money. Of they they didn't care. And and yeah, and eventually that shoe dropped. And um and I do think it would be another one to get to your point about. All these things do, they, they benefit, they benefit whatever you want to call them. The establishment, the rich. Um, but but the, the investor,
0: it is the investor in the end. The, the investor, the investor. 401k, uh, gu- that's another part. That's another big issue. 50 years investor, ago, 50 years ago, the investor didn't care about their retirement retirement. In in, in uh, just follow me for a second here because they sure, knew that yeah, they, they had a defined d- contract, d- defined defined sure, yeah. It, so it was like, right. oh, I don't have to save, I got the I got social security and I got my my company's uh, plan today. That's been fully offloaded. Talk about a, a coup for the companies, fully offloaded with a small piece. So now instead of you being responsible for four percent of your retirement and your company being responsible for 96%, it's totally flipped. You're responsible yeah, for 96%
1: of your retirement. Sure, and that's and that's the same way with with any of the government benefits or entitlements. Uh, you look at the immigration system and illegal. I'm talking illegal immigration in our country. Uh, personally, I think the person, the people that are responsible for it more than anybody are the business owners, a lot of small business owners, because those are the guys that are deferring the labor costs, right? They're mm-hmm. going to hire an illegal. They don't have to pay. They don't have to pay their health care. If you got a restaurant. You got some guy washing dishes or something that's an illegal. He still getting health care.
0: Yeah, government government benefits, of
1: course. You're, you're paying you're you're paying Social Security. You know, you're paying the Social Security tax on his payroll wages. But it, it, if he gets sick, he goes to the hospital. The taxpayers pay for. It. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's and then, so yeah, it, it it's always going to do that. Um, where I where I think we are going to see and this is a d- divergence from that bond vigil anything because it's almost the opposite of it. But look at a country like Japan, how much, and I don't know the question I'm mean, as you may know it off the top of your head, how much does the bank of Japan, how, how much of Japanese debt is owned by the bank of Japan? Most and equities and more than half and equities. And equities. I think 15% of, of Japanese equities are owned by the bank of Japan. Yeah, But let's just say they own 50% of Japanese debt, which is, sky high compared to, I mean, people talk about how bad our debt is. If you look at Japan and China, these places are even worse, but it, half of, someday we will wake up and we will see the the president of um, the Bank of Japan and the, and the prime minister of Japan, and they will shake hands and they'll forgive, that. they'll forgive whatever it is, half that debt, 75% of the debt, whatever it is, we'll forgive it. It'll go away. It'll, it'll be a Jubilee, like when of Jubilee Years, you know, where that's forgiven, and it—if you think about it—is convoluted. But it really won't hurt anybody because where did the central bank of Japan get the money? It printed it. It, it never existed to begin with. So, uh, even with with our balance now of—I uh, don't know what it is—is is it eight, eight trillion or something on the Federal Reserve's balance sheet? If they um, if they write that off, and it's it, some of it's mortgage, it's not all U.S. Treasury. But if they write that off, who does it hurt? It doesn't – this is where we – I think when people talk about you know, we're putting this debt on our grandchildren or on future generations, now that we've already been punished by the debt. It's, it's hitting us and um, it's hit us in the form of our money hasn't earned any, any real value over these past years and, and we're we, – we've had hidden inflation that's just getting worse.
0: But does it ever come to be a problem? You know, it's like all these things are happening, the things that were predicted. About the, you know, the debt bomb. Which we're, we're here. I mean, I we're here. All right. this is because of this. You know, we've had rolling air. You know, no recession now, but no recession. We're never gonna have a recession. I mean, okay. Well,
1: um, the the so only like, people, the only people to get, I think, the people that end up getting hit though, or hurt, are are people that are paid in nominal wages and people that are hurt that are holding government currency. Right. If you're yeah. if you own beachfront property in Malibu, mm-hmm. no matter what happens, you still own a valuable asset. Yeah,
0: because right? yeah. you T-tangible, own
1: tangible. In yeah. mm-hmm. tangible asset, right? Yeah. But also not it could be stocks, right? If you if you, if you own shares of Microsoft, if you own shares of Apple or Alphabet, then it doesn't matter what happens to the local currency, whether your currency is you know dinars or US dollars or Canadian dollars, Australian dollars, it doesn't matter because you own an asset of an appreciating an appreciating company right which is on the a, which the is property. on the
0: opposite end of the currency i mean this is the same right. con- this is the same argument that bitcoiners give you
1: are you a bitcoiner well uh, well i'm not a bitcoiner um i, I, w- I wish i was going to buy some in 2015 and uh, yeah, yeah we all were bad, bad decision yeah bad decision <laughs> um, I'll tell you, Bitcoin. I kind of, I, I tease my Bitcoin friends though. They don't ever like, they, you know, they don't like the Davos crowd for the most part. And I always say, well, didn't Davos guys say that you're going to own nothing and be happy? It's mm-hmm. sort of, yeah, it's just an algorithm. Um, well, the funniest thing um, right but, now but, is, but, 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 but I'll tell you the thing about the thing about Bitcoin though is, with any any asset, it's all based on faith, right? It's of a course, faith system,
0: the full faith and, and, and credit
1: and, of blank. Of whatever, right? And and today there's $42,000 worth of faith in Bitcoin. I mean, I, I'm cool with that. I, 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 I wish I owned
0: something. The one thing about Bitcoin that kind of really makes me giggle a little bit, chuckle, is how it was supposed to be a currency away from the mainstream. It wasn't supposed to be, you know, the big boys that owned it or had it or whatever. It was supposed to be an alternative and more, a little bit uh, uh, giving some anonymity. It was also for uh, speed uh, payment systems and all that. And and these same people that 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 believed in all of that of a, you know a, a revolution are now cheering Bitcoin ETFs. I'm like, are you kidding me? That is the antithesis of what you would have wanted if you started out with as a as a Bitcoin
1: purist. Now
0: well, it, the establishment owns it,
1: it, it. Worse than that part though. If, if it was one or two ETFs, I would totally think it should be, right? I mean, there's a gold ETF. There's a silver ETF. There's 11, 11 Bitcoin ETFs. Stupidest thing. So that, that, well, that, that, that gets to where we are with inflation and why I don't think things are getting better. I think they're going to get worse because what, what you just described, what we're talking about, where you, you take something that was designed to be a decentralized, um, you know, its own asset class, and now we got investors in Wall Street money pouring in and creating 11 ETFs to trade off of that. It's it's malinvestment. This, mm-hmm. this gets back to when the Federal Reserve took away the value of the earning capacity of money, then all these you know, imaginary methods of earning money came about. Look over the years of, of um, you don't have to go, go back for me, just go back to the pandemic. Look at the, the special purpose acquisition company. Oh, the, 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 the NFTs, uh, and, and, you know, Bitcoin, I think Bitcoin has some fundamentals around it, but look at all the crap coins. I mean, how many have we forgotten about? Oh, I don't know. Sure. There probably has been a thousand of them that gone yeah. away and, and FTX was built on that.
0: Yep. On the, on but the, not on, on,
1: at, the... At, at, on that whole concept, yep. but not even just the Bitcoin stuff. Look at, look at Theranos. Remember Theranos? Of course. Uh, what's your oh, name? Lizzie. Lizzie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Total, total scam company. Well, the you know what? I, I
0: gotta tell you something. That was bigger than a scam because it was all these people that bought into it, just like they did FTX. It was just exactly the same without the due diligence. And those people we should do be do just more than ashamed of themselves. I wanna I wanna switch gears with you. I want to in closing before we can um we finish up. I want to talk about uh, you 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 have this discussion about your concern about uh peak globalization. And uh, I want to dovetail. I, I call that selective isolationism, by the way, but I want to dovetail that into the discussion of um, of technology and the robots. And you just again, you wrote this book. The robots are coming. Uh, Human survival guide to profiting in the age of automation. I mean, AI is the epitome and and the pinnacle of automation, is it not? And how is that going to potentially have? reverberating, uh, uh, you know, uh, sort of like the, how is that going to help or hurt globalization trends?
1: Sure. And let me step back here to a second. So I wrote that book, the robots are coming. I wrote that in 2016. It got published in 2017. I talked a lot about um, the trends that we've seen take place, you know, the work from home um, reshoring of factories and things to North America um, peak, peak globalization, all that was in the book. Um, I talked about things like, and this is not to say I could predict anything. I'll, I'll get to that in a second. Cause I missed a lot of things, but it, I talked about decision support systems, which is what really what we're talking about with regenerative AI. I, when I see all this becoming very productive in the future, when we actually, when it's not just a matter of you're chatting with something, but when you can take, um, an expert system—you know, the, the the greatest surgeons in the world—you combine all their all their knowledge, and then uh, when you're training new surgeons or new doctors, or even when someone's in an operating room, they can be wearing some kind of augmented uh, reality system, where as they're actually performing the operation, or while they're assisted by a robot that's performing the operation, they can see real time what's going on and compare it to the combined data of all these surgeons you know, that we've put in the data system. So I think all that is going to be very productive. But where we, where, what I didn't anticipate when I wrote that book was that we would get a pandemic, which would speed a lot of the deglobalization up before the efficiencies of automation could could keep up. So, because my argument in the book was going to be more that we are going to have unemployment and we are going to have um, stable to, deflationary type pressures because all this automation will put people out of work and it will um it'll bring efficiencies in a, into areas like education, government, um the, the healthcare medical system that places where where that hadn't benefited from deflation. But you'll get, still you'll get you get the pushback.
0: You'll get the pushback that people will say that you know what it's it's not it's a zero zero sum game. When you lose Employees to one area; it's the other area, especially like a technology situation that picks up the employees, and that's why we that's haven't seen a major. It, it's it's semi true.
1: Well, 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 the the, perp, the part of me writing that book and why I talked about um, profiting from it was that I, I do believe that that especially for people that apply themselves and people that are creative, they are going to they are going to excel. I mean, the, Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci. Or Michelangelo with a 3D printer, right? Or with a CNC router? Are these, if you have the talent and you can apply the tools of technology, it's going to totally expand what an individual society can have. I agree. But, 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 but that's you know, what's that? Ten percent. If you don't have, have the talent, ninety amplifying. Yeah. If you don't have the talent, it just amplifies your your, your the horror of what you're doing. And the, the other <laughs> the other side of where I, where I, like I disagree TikTok. with, <laughs> I'll like TikTok exactly where I disagree with the people that say that you know the jobs are just going to get replaced. Well you know, different world. But my grandfather, probably much like your grandfather, maybe your grandfather, your great grandfather, my grandfather came over from Italy, in the early 1900s. And um, he had no education, he had no skills, he had to be a laborer. And throughout his life, he had to shift and try and improve himself to work, you know, work his self up the ladder. And, and if he lost one job, he had to find another one, he didn't eat. Today, if you lose a job, you can still live a pretty decent life because we have a social, you know, a social network that takes care of people. So you just don't you just don't have the human incentive anymore to uh, to excel, to, excel. to and, excel. And and I'm talking about the broad masses. I mean, it's there for individuals, but it, collectively. Um, and going back, I, I grew I grew up in the Pittsburgh in the late 1970s. I was a teenager. Um, yeah, I, I joined the Marine Corps at 17 because I was a patriot, I needed a job. You know, mm-hmm. there, was, there was nothing going on in Pittsburgh back then. But <laughs> if you were a 55-year-old, if you were a 55-year-old coal miner, or 55-year-old steel worker in Pittsburgh in 1978, um, it, you didn't transition to another job. There, there weren't any. Right. Um, so, so yeah, yeah. technology is going to destroy things for certain people. This time around, I think it's going to hit white-collar workers. It's going to technology has been has been taking away jobs from well google announced from just from this men. Week,
0: just as week google announced that they're going to be cutting back on their headcount in order to fund their ai movement the the research sure. and development <laughs> of ai they're going to cut i'm like what how does that work
1: well because cuz they're getting ai to write a lot of the programs right well i guess so it's um, it's, it's 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 like uh
0: you know you, you don't you don't cut off your arm to lose weight though
1: you know you don't cut off a leg to be lighter so that you can run faster Right. Well, and that's that. That's part of where I think we have to work through all this transition to get back to your original question about the peak peak globalization. Though okay, my my theory has always been that things were going to come out of Asia and specifically come out of China, turn back to North America, not necessarily the U.S. but North America broadly, and because our energy costs had come down so substantially since two thousand five, two thousand six, we started fracking and in, increasing production, and you know today we're what thirteen point five million barrels a day mm-hmm. producing oil. Mm-hmm. Um, again, over, over you and I's lifetime, all we ever heard growing up was we're going to run out of oil. We're going to run out of oil Be- because we were right from the 1970s on it was uh, declining pop- uh, production of oil. Technology changed all that. You know, it's not just about horizontal drilling. That's, that's artificial intelligence. That's big data. That's cloud computing. That's robotics. I and mean, that's, that's what made us a powerhouse now in producing energy and with lower energy costs and then the eventual dark factories that'll come online with needing less humans will be run by robots or artificial intelligence or whatever that's going to make the cost of production in north america much more competitive mm-hmm. and so that, that was again that was my original premise and and i still think that's coming to pass but what happened in the interim was we got the pandemic we got the shock waves that proved that the the globalization wasn't a good idea anyways. I mean, just in time, just in time deliveries only make sense if when, you have, if, you when have,
0: if you can get if them, you right. have to
1: you can get them right. <laughs> and 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 now, even now after the pandemic, we're seeing what's happening in the Red Sea, the Black Sea. Yeah. Um, shoot, the the Panama Canal can't even fill itself up. Yeah. Right. So I mean. All these things are going to bring, I believe, manufacturing back to North America, not 100%. I mean, there's there's always going to be some globalization, but I think we hit peak globalization over these last 10 to 15 years, which was the same time that the Fed was able to degrade the value of money. And now all those chickens are coming home to roost because the, the, the value of money is going to have to go up. The, the yield on the value of money is going to have to go up. Because we we don't have state-owned uh, Chinese operations, don't care about profit, to flood the market with all the products that they did. I mean, you know, to the extent that things move out of China and they go to India, mm-hmm. the Indian government's not going to subsidize it like the Chinese government did. They're they're uh, they're not a communist party. They're you know they're they're profit motive driven yeah, cap- in, yeah, in more India. So, yeah, more capitalists. capitalists. Yeah. Market dem- capitalist. democratic thing. So they don't have they don't they have to show a profit even though they have maybe the capacity to do it you look at other places like vietnam or philippines yeah they can do some work i mean these are small shallow economies it, there's
0: but there's no good, way they have good workers capacity.
1: they are good workers excellent workers as the chinese are excellent i mean but it's just the the fact that we had a, a statewide operation for the last 30 years without a profit motive just trying to gain market share and build buildings and use concrete and um, you know I think I think that peak part of that globalization is done and we're going to come back to a more normal realistic economy that's going to mean everything is more expensive. Yeah, we got to end it there, John Pugliano. Uh, we're going to have all the information on how to
0: get in touch with you on the show notes for episode number eight fifty two on the disciplinedinvestor.com on how to get to your podcast Wealth Steading, as well as uh, of course your book. Over uh, on, on all fine venues. Thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you, Andrew. Always a pleasure to be on. All right, man. Thanks. Well, that's in the business that we call a wrap. Great guest today, both Danielle DiMartino Booth and John Pugliano. Different topics, but I think uh, are both of those particular issues we talked about today are the highlights of what is on the mind of most investors right now, right? The Fed, interest rates, and AI and technology. So there we have it. put it out there. Thanks for uh, coming aboard. next week, we have a pretty exci- I'm pretty excited about uh, our our guest as well, and uh, you should be as well. That's gonna be Tim Knight. So uh, stay tuned. Coming up after that. next few weeks, we have Tom McClellan. We have uh, Roddy Moaz. We have uh, Wesley Gray, Larry Mcmillan. Lots of names that are on the docket. So, make sure that you are staying subscribed go over to Apple go over to Spotify Amazon wherever else that you want Google podcasts for that matter anywhere that you want to get your podcast we are on that platform so make sure to uh, stay uh, tight with us. Thanks for this week's uh, attendance you're listening your ear thank you for being there always and I'm gonna see you again next week. Nothing discussed in this podcast should be considered a recommendation to buy or sell any security. Past performance is no indication of future results. In addition, the information presented is not intended to be used as a sole basis of any investment decisions, nor should be construed as advice designed to meet the individual needs of any particular investor. Nothing herein constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice, or individually tailored investment advice. Remember, investing involves substantial risk. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results and a loss of original capital may occur. No one receiving or accessing this information should make any investment decision without first consulting his or her own personal financial advisor and conducting his or her own research and due diligence, including carefully reviewing any applicable prospectuses, press releases, reports, and other public filings of the issuer of any securities being considered. Please consider this for educational purposes only. As always, use your best judgment when investing. Horowitz & Company, Inc. is registered as an investment advisor with the state of Florida and conducts business in other states where it is properly registered or is excluded from registration requirements. Registration does not imply any level of skill or training. Advertisements are not related to the host or affiliates and are not considered recommendations by the host of the show or any affiliates of Horowitz & Company.